the bigger picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose and joining me for The Bigger Picture, as every fortnight, is Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London. Tim, where are we going to begin today? Well, there is a brilliant piece um, in Telegraph by Ambrose Evans Pritchard. And what he's really describing is the era of oil and gas will soon be over. The industry must now reinvent itself to find a place in the new world order. And... For a long time, uh, Shell Oil uh, was indeed an oil company, but about five or ten years ago, um, it was selling more gas than than oil. And Shell, like many of these other big energy uh, providers, um, uh, again have taken a vote recently to to in effect become uh, an energy company for the coming green era. I mean, what's really interesting about the article? by Ambrose Evans Pritchard is the data contained within it. He points out that um, that given the measures that are now being taken by governments around the world, in light of the new technologies that are available, this is the key point, um, then then the you know the old uh, forms of, of energy, things like you know uh, natural gas, oil and coal, they really are going to go on winding down and that they're going to be winding down because not only are the new sources of energy uh, not only plentiful, but many of them are almost boundless, but they're going to actually lead to a world where energy is much cheaper and uh, and it will be cheaper and it will spawn lots of industries that will have lots more jobs and prosperity. You know, if it, whatever people are spending on their energy at the moment, um, he thinks that between... Uh, well, this decade and and the very early 2050s, that the data indicates that people are spending, uh, in real terms, sort of half the amounts of money uh, uh, that they're spending on energy today, they'll be spending on energy then. Um, so he paints a picture of an almost universal win-win-win for society, apart from, of course, those people who um, uh, you know are still part of the old school oil or dependent for their economies or their employment or whatever on old school coal oil and gas um so uh, i think i've argued before that 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 these trends were inevitable you know whatever anyone thinks about global warming or global cooling or climate change or or whatever that that the technology um is developing in such a way and you know it is about harnessing wind and wave, and it's looking at the economics around solar, but it's also looking out to the 2040s and 50s. Uh, it's, it's looking in the shorter term about the development of batteries and lithium batteries, but it's also beyond that. It's looking out to uh, the possibility of, you know, of, of, of a new generation of nuclear reactor. Uh, and, and I mean, there are major players in, in, in the UK historically uh, companies uh, or organisations like Jet, who've got huge research laboratories, you know, looking at the possibility one day of of of, of sort of fission fission technology and and um, and and a new generation of of, of nuclear power, uh, basically harnessing, if you will, mini suns uh, that can be contained um, uh, in nuclear power plants in the future. And that will give us really 
lots of energy for very, very little money. Yes. It, it seems odd. I confess that the automobiles seem almost universally to be plumping for electric. It's only a few days since Carlos Tavares, who's chief executive of the company, I confess I've never heard of before, called Solantis, but they're basically Fiat, Chrysler and Vauxhall, saying he just really couldn't understand why they're rushing to get electric cars. He thinks the middle class will just be priced out of vehicles. So it's much, much more expensive. Um, he's also pointing out the vehicles are much heavier, so they use more power, and that if the energy that they uh, use in the car, the electricity has actually been generated from coal or oil-fired power stations, then ultimately you're actually leading to more emissions. I find it very odd that people assume electric cars are automatically cleaner, even though you mentioned lithium batteries, um, majority controlled by China, which has been buying up um, uh, lithium uh, deposits all over the world. We understand that the way it's extracted is pretty appalling. The um, um, uh, uh, effect on the environment is pretty terrible. But somehow people just seem to think that electricity is automatically clean because it is clean at the point of use without thinking about how it's actually made. And I've, I've seen several things, many of which may, of course, come from Ambrose Evan Pritchard, because as you point out, he takes one view one week and then almost takes the contrary view the other week, which is fantastic, because you you know you get to look at all sides of the argument. But I've seen people say that the actual um, environmental costs of making an electric car may actually negate any uh, gains over the life of it, over the conventional one. I just worry that we're rushing into this perhaps a little bit too quickly, though it is it is impressive that most of the oil and gas industry now recognises they need to change because much like the tobacco industry for a long time, you know, there just was not that recognition. Yeah. So, so I think there, there, there are many points there. The first is that you mentioned the motor car and the cost. You're absolutely right, um, uh, but of course, over time, these things start out to almost be luxury goods. Mm. Um, they, they, you know, they, they do become much cheaper. Yes. I remember. Um, I think when I first, when 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 the world of the video recorder came into my life, they were extortionately expensive. I nagged my parents, and they couldn't really afford mm. to buy one. The price didn't come down until the early mid '80s. Now, what? Well, not only do they not make them, but DVDs and, and these yes. things are ridiculous. Um, if you go right back to the through the history of the motor car, in fact, you go back to that really fascinating world, the last half of the 19th century, where we had steam engines, but you had many entrepreneurs producing what were sort of called then hybrid vehicles. This was particularly the case um, uh, well, throughout the, the, the 19th century, particularly in the 1840s, when there were lots of entrepreneurs, you know, um, who were producing motor vehicles that were partly steam, but had sort of early, uh, early components from what later became the internal combustion engine. Mm. What, what this meant was that legislators had... Uh, quite a challenge to predict the sort of infrastructure that was required to support um, you know, whatever kind of future was going to finally come from it. And really, the, the future only came became clear in about 1900. Um, but before that, there were all kinds of regulations um, and, and innovations, of which Tarm Academy was one. I think it was a big, there was a big bill put through around 1846 um, that, that was trying to legislate for roads that would variously have horses on them, steam engines, and these hybrid vehicles. And so the, the problems we're dealing with in political economy today around energy, transport, all the, you know, all these things, 
they're not that different. They would in fact be recognized by some of the judgment calls that were having to be made by legislators, for example, in Britain in the Victorian period. The issue is this, I think, what is the real thrust of, 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 of the trajectory of technology? And yes, things might start to be very expensive and they might be purchased by comparatively you know, well-off middle-class people, but where will they go after that? And I think that this is a real conundrum for politicians, um, be they, you know, in Canada or Britain or Germany or, or Japan or wherever, mm. because it's almost as if that the country that signals it's going to bring forward that future first will no doubt attract the scientists, the technologists and the investment um, to create the brands, you know, that, that will that will that, that, that will then drive um, these global changes mm. in these global markets. Secondly, and and this is never really mentioned um, uh, in 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 the press or media, and I don't know it to be true, but I suspect it is true. I believe it to be true, but I'm happy to be shot down in flames. I I, I do believe that uh, you know that if you are in um, the, uh, the diplomatic service, uh, if you're if you're a diplomat, if you're in Washington, if you're in London, if you're in Bonn or Paris, there is also a general feeling that for those countries that do have an abundance of oil and gas, it is no accident that they tend to be the more authoritarian um, sort of semi, you know, mm. states, and that if we can invest to bring on this new technology and if that technology in the medium and long term turns out to be beneficial and reduce energy costs and grow prosperity and jobs and all the rest of it then uh then by reducing the demand for oil and for gas we might actually also have the spin-off benefit of encouraging various authoritarian regimes be they russia venezuela um, in the Middle East, wherever, to to actually um, to develop more liberal or enlightened forms of governance, because yes. you can no longer simply dig wealth out of literally out of the ground yes. to monitor, monitor and pacify your people. But now your country's prosperity has to really engage with the global economy, and you have to develop their your people, their education, and their talent. Well then you get you know, a, a really interesting sociological shift with your population. Um, and that in turn will spur potentially more diverse forms of governance and hopefully a few more circulating elites. Yes. So I think there's an awful lot to this that is not just about um, you know, uh, technology and oil and gas. I think there are other dimensions. And, but I return to the key point. I think it's very difficult. It was very difficult throughout the 19th century for our politicians to judge things like railways, yes. tarmac, horse and cart, steam, the first hybrid vehicles. Remember when the motor car came onto the road, there was a person with a red flag in front. Yes, yes, yes. And they, you know, these sort of conundrums then are exactly the sort yes. with, 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 and, and bizarrely, although it's been forgotten, there were a lot of early electric vehicles. That's exactly right. You know, exactly. didn't it was like the fight between VHS and Betamax the electric did, didn't win out but I mean the same way you mentioned before I even had a chance to answer the question but the oil and gas and the, the sort of geopolitical complications um, that we've 
had because we depend so much upon it and the the fight for the resources but it does look as if you know at least as far as the electric um, future is going that china has basically been looking ahead further than anybody else and has snaffled a large proportion of the resources needed to move us to a, a, a an electric based future well and this is where um uh, the economics around solar is important it's hmm. where uh, you know, wind, but it's also I mentioned. Um, you know, research organisations in Britain are looking at uh, at the future of nuclear and the development of, of what are now called mini nuclear power stations um, and fission technology. You know, um, where this goes because the whole history of this space uh, is that um, that yes, who controls the sources of energy. Uh, has tremendous economic, industrial, and uh, and and geopolitical clout. It's why, for example, Britain and France uh, did so many uh, questionable things for so long around the time of the world, the First World War, right across the Middle East. It's because Britain had worked out, and the French had worked out, as well as others had, that that that, that the motor car was the thing, internal combustion engine, mm. the oil was literally liquid gold. Gold are going to be for the future, but but if you get altitude above history, you know maybe the oil story is starting to come to an end, and maybe with things like lithium in Central and North Africa, maybe uh, the Chinese have stolen a bit of a march. But you know what? These innovations seem to happen ever faster, and just as you think you control one resource, that is the be all or end all find a generation on the world has moved on and it's something you didn't expect i mean the one thing that strikes me about this uh now given the diverse sources of energy that seem to be coming online and the sort of diverse sort of forms of research that are being done i think um i think the point is that that no one resource is going to necessarily win the future it, it is a really dynamic area but it's one connected to the heart of geopolitics and statecraft. Tim, thank you. Uh, time for us to change topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. So I think we're going to look at uh, trains now and the government's latest um, initiative, Great British Railways. I can't, I have to confess, I think my heart sank when I heard this announcement. I'm not sure it's going to bode well, but you may differ. Well, the, the history of the railways in Britain are, are one of, of continual oscillation uh, between a, a sort of greater degree of state control and a greater degree of private control. And we seem to relentlessly pivot in the, in the opposite direction every 30 or 40 years. And... And again, this is one of those things, you know, you can go back, you know, to the middle of the 19th century, where there was, of course, the railway boom, mm -hmm. um, led by privateers who could win acts of parliament to, um, to, to build their private railways. And what a network was built. It was, a, it was not only colossal and very innovative, we were first off the mark in many ways, but by the Edwardian period, we probably had the finest, the most competitive uh, railway system in the world and it was very high quality and very efficient um let's not forget simon we're, we've got an underlying technological theme today that the railways uh completely displaced 
um, the the canals, uh, which okay. in the great boom of the 18th century, and and um, so anyway, there we are. So so there were the railways were developed, but by after the First World War, um, uh, the railway companies um, had really developed as many railways, quite frankly, as they could, and the motor car was on the rise. It really was, and so by 1926, the state started to intervene with those wonderful old companies like LMS and LNER and GWR, these wonderful heroic names, started to intervene by the state didn't take them into public ownership. What the state did do was start to control uh, the timetables. Uh, the timetables uh, started to be centrally planned uh, by people who supposedly knew better in London. Then, of course, we know the story that in the late 1940s, uh, after the Second World War, the, the the private railway companies got into a lot of financial difficulty, uh, no doubt partly through uh, their loss of control of timetables, but also just the rise of the motor car, and and so the service was taken into state ownership, and it went into the sort of very British genteel decline um, that, as you and I know, famously ended up not only with ghastly trains that were filthy and very disgruntled, poorly paid, poorly imagined staff and trade union strikes and 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 run by idiocy but the, the famous moment where british rail could no longer even produce and i'm not joking a ham sandwich or a or a cheese sandwich and this is where prue leaf the wonderful cook and chef came onto uh, the, the radar of popular consciousness because british rail's chairman and board turned to her on a committee they hired her to define and, and and literally stipulate the criteria of what a British rail ham and cheese yeah. sandwich would be, and in there lies the tale. The yes. And we all, we all remember, you know, them curling up at the, cor well, exactly. the corners. And there's a wonderful. And just to digress slightly, Peter Parker, who, who ran British Rail, um, uh, went. I can't remember which agency it was, but but they were they were were all pitching for the. Uh, BR massive advertising contract and he was kept waiting in a reception area and he was kept waiting and waiting and it was incredibly messy there were cups lying around everywhere it was just appalling um, nobody was polite to him and just as he got cross and said he was going to leave they pointed out that's exactly the impression that everybody who used BR had of the company absolutely and I, and I remember it you know I mean I remember that the carriages the stations were filthy there was no entrepreneurship there were no shops on the stations like there are today mm. there was the odd kiosk strikes all, all everywhere food was revolting i mean it was really depressing and in, in addition to that and people forget this now it also turned out that many of the carriages were full of of, of things like blue asbestos which were reportedly very dangerous <laughs> and of course the infrastructure simply wasn't invested in mm. um because politicians being vote hungry creatures were you know if, if the public if voters weren't prioritizing yes. railways and the price was i know prioritising the NHS and defence, well, that's where the money went and the railways lost another yes. five years. And although many people who use rail, the last year and a year and a bit has been uh, rather di different, but I mean, the people who use railways often will complain, but there has been a staggering increase in the number of passengers carried over the last two, two decades. So what is it that the government are proposing now to do? Well, so what happened, as we know, in the early 90s, the government then interviewed, it brought in franchises, privatisation, separated the track from, from new private market entrance companies that ran different uh, parts of the country's railway system. 
Um, and I well remember the chaos that that brought because, you know, if you wanted to go to Edinburgh on one occasion, I had to go via Birmingham and there was one company that was doing it for Birmingham, but then he was told early on to buy another ticket from Birmingham. I mean, it was absolute chaos. And, um, and Although that had worked in the Victorian era, that's exactly what happened, but it, but it worked. But, but, but we were trying to recreate yeah. something yes. Victorians were, and this was the point. So anyway, the, the system has gone on, and it, yes, the railways have certainly got better. Lots more people are using them. Um, the trains haven't always operated in a timely manner. The track is up to a high quality again. You know, there's lots of capital that's gone into the industry, and it's thriving in a way that it hasn't done before. But it's very, very expensive. Um, lots of those managerial versus trade union issues uh, are, are still belie the industry. There, you know, we saw on Southern Railways. You and I discussed it four years ago. Problems with, with a very long strike, and so what we've had again, as the Tory party has become a bigger sort of big tent party and has gone through the red wall, so it has stolen. Uh, some of the thinking of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, and now we're going to have Great British Railways, and they are going to um, uh, have again. We're back to 1926, where the state is going to find federally plan uh, the timetable, but there'll be a bit of Thatcherite privatisation that remains, and that there'll be competing companies uh, providing the trains and the services, and basically they're using the Transport for London model, which is that there are customers. Um, they try to grow the volume uh, of the business. Uh, there's lots of private capital in there, but there are different providers on, on uh, that, that win routes um, and that everything is sort of ultimately badged and ultimately accountable to one national framework, just as we know London Transport and DFL is ultimately responsible for the tube and rail. So it, it's, it, 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 it's sort of... Um, Corbyn light and Thatcher light. I it's it's a fairly opaque and blurred picture. <laughs> I know the um CPS, the Centre for Policy Studies, has come out and say that more flexible ticketing policies is a good idea, but they're very worried that this is going to reduce um competition. Uh, and they say open access competition on trunk lines is actually a very good thing. They mean lower costs and higher quality services because of the competition. Um, they reckon both the consumers and taxpayers have benefited from that, um, but it does sort of worry me that you know we go back to this idea that the central government working out what's going to be right in the same way that you talked about how in the early days of um, um, you know the internal combustion engine and the railways and everything else that nobody can sort of prophesy the future. It does worry me that that's going to be what they're going to try and do. Well, you know, we we now have with the railways, not not far short of 200 years of history. I mean, the railway started, really got underway in the middle of the, 19, you know, you know, the, middle of the 19th century in this sort of Victorian period. So we're not far off it. And what, as I've described, we've had this oscillation between a greater degree of state control and the market control. And the reason we have that, the reason politicians go through various cycles of taking back control or liberalizing is because essentially a railway is what an economic theorist would call a public good. Mm. It is, it is, it is, you know, it, it, it is non-rivalrous. It, it doesn't make sense that have one railway line and to have a competing line next to it. So it's no, it's a non-rivalrous good, and um, and uh, it, although it has qualities of excludability, you know, if you want to use the railway because there's one line, mm. it, you know, etc. So it has these these qualities of, of what economists call a public good. Um, 
It also has all kinds of externalities that it's been grappling with. The, the major one, of course, being the arrival of not only the motor car, but from the 1920s, A roads, and then from the 1950s, motorways. Because motorways, apart from fuel and, and, and taxes, are essentially free at the point of use. And, and therefore, by not having road pricing or road tolls on many of those A roads and those motorways, as for example, they do in France, um, um, it, it almost as if uh, the railways are having to compete uh, with with road space um, that is that is in some ways priced at zero. If I could put it like, yes. and you know, if I was running a railway company, um, or if I actually was, you know, in the the minister responsible for railways, and I wanted to start more money and investment into railways, what I'd probably want, dare I say it, is road pricing. Now we're getting road pricing in certain urban areas like London, and it, that's all being smuggled in, often for environmental reasons. Um, but if if we did have um, uh, more toll roads as they do in France, then we might find that that would shift the time preferences of customers and, and their economic view. Um, so you know, but but this is the problem. It has part shares part of the quality of of, of a public good. Um, it 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 is competed with not only by for long haul for intercity by domestic air flights, but but. By the motor car. If, of course, you're right, and the motor car, the hybrid future motor car, the green motor car becomes more expensive, for well, that may indeed be an opportunity <laughs> for the railways. But here we are defaulting into trying to, you know, gaze into our crystal ball, see the future, and become central planners. And we don't know. We well, don't speaking know. for myself, I prefer travelling by canal boat. Nice sedate, nice sedate pace. You know, Simon, I always thought you were an 18th century gentleman. <laughs> Tim, thank you. Time for us to change to our last topic. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. And what will our final topic be, Tim? Oh, I meant to say, I'm Simon Rose, and I'm talking to Professor Tim Evans of Middlesex University, uh, Professor of Business and Political Economy there. Sorry, I need to do the check each time. No, so I found myself last year, my my daughter asked me a little while ago, she's 15 at the moment, she asked me a wonderful question, she said, Daddy, when you were younger, was the internet in black and white? And, (laughs) and, And I had to not only explain how the internet came into my life, which it did in 1994, but I also had to explain what entertainment was like when I was a child. So mm. I described the world of the late 1960s and 70s, BBC One, BBC Two, ITV. I showed her um, online a YouTube clip of something that older listeners will remember, which was the bane of everyone's uh, childhood in the in the 60s and 70s, the dreaded trade test card transfer. Oh, yes, yes. Which meant that uh, the BBC was just broadcasting some squiggly lines and a picture of a, of a girl with a doll, but there was no actual programming or entertainment. And that was certainly the case, I would say. That, that had replaced the potter's wheel, which was much more interesting. Well, there we are. So, so, so... The point was, I explained to my daughter when I was very yes. young, television, you know, was really dreadfully dull. And that in grandma and granddad's day in the 30s and 40s, 
they were lucky to get half an hour or one hour a day of children's programming on the radio lucky on the home service so i described to her the glee when channel four uh literally arrived in the early 80s and and there was this new disruptive um radical unpredictable and that was the best quality unpredictable station they had a new generation of comedian new types of entertainment it was very whizzy very zippy very funny you didn't know if you were going to be politically got out from the left or the right uh, they would often do things that were shocking um, um really shocking and that the establishment didn't like and, and of course to a young person this was excellent news um uh, but I remember when Channel 4 arrived, I remember the moment it started, I was sitting with my dad in my parents' house in Putney, Channel 4 started, and it was almost as if we had reached the luxuriant point, we almost thought of ourselves as being practically American. I'd grown up with a gay godfather whose boyfriend had uh, been American, and I would hear how in the 1970s American televisions could receive 30 or 40 channels, you know. And so when Channel 4 arrived, I felt as if I was sitting immediately, not in my parents' house, but an enormous Cadillac car. I described this and then how, you know, then television went digital and new channels came on and then the internet, and now we're in the world of almost seemingly infinite entertainment. But of course, there is this gripe for many people in Britain that uh, that the news is fairly dull, uh, that you've got Channel 4 news that tends to be somewhat now predictably sort of centre-left. Um, I used to like Channel 4 news a lot. when it, I didn't mind if it was sort of centre-left, but often it would do unpredictable things when people like Liam Halligan were there. You never knew from night to night where they were going to be coming at an issue, and I loved it, but it's become predictable. Um, everyone on the right thinks the BBC uh, news and, and BBC are very left-wing, and everyone on the left thinks the BBC are very right-wing. Uh, everyone on the left looks at BBC news that report uh, the FTSE index and what the Queen is doing and you know, various dukes and all the rest of it. And everyone on the left is outraged. And then the right see uh, um, the sort of progression of the diversity agenda and inclusion and even with all the rent of the left wing. But my point is that it's been like this for years. It's been like it every, and I know on the right thinks it's left, everyone you know, who sort of is of the left watches Channel 4 News and reads The Guardian. It used to be the case if you're a bit right wing, you'd watch Sky News. But it's all an immense yawn. And there is apparently um, a new news channel coming on called GB News. Um, uh, I don't really know who's backing it, although I think Andrew Neil is clearly playing a key role. And what it's trying to do, it, I think it's coming from the sort of centre right, whatever that means these days, I never quite know. Um, um, I'm assuming a bit free market, all the rest of it. Um, maybe for global Britain, who knows? And um, it, and it's apparently going to be there because the, the financiers and backers of this believe that an awful lot of Middle England, where you know who who, who might like Boris or support the centre right, are not being served, and that it's time to have something big and new. Um, I I was reminded this week that Unite the Union, currently led by then McCluskey, although. He's retiring soon. They are currently sitting on a strike fund in excess of three hundred and forty million pounds. And you know, the trade union movement themselves, the labor movement, 
are not without um, therefore serious wedges of cash. And I just wonder if we could not have a slightly more exciting and might more dynamic um, future where we have, you know, new market entrants in the, the news arena. Um, uh, I don't think that's without it risks, but I think it could make for more fun um, and, and, and for greater diversity and for greater choice. So I, I'm really interested in Alistair Heath, of course, in The Telegraph, um, is delighted with the arrival of GB News. I wonder if there'll be some new market entrants from friends on the left. And, and I wonder um, what impact that will have on the old stalwarts, whether it's Channel 4 News or the BBC. You know, I wonder where we're going with this. I think it's due to start uh, later uh, this month. We're recording this in May. Um, so it will be interesting to see. And you can get it on free view. You don't have to subscribe, apparently. So we shall see. Though, as Alistair Heath pointed out in his piece, uh, you know, be interesting to see how they actually get income because in the States, the big news networks um, get money from um, sort of franchising out to all the cable channels. Well, we don't quite have that in yeah. this country. And of course, television advertising has been in something of a parlour state for some time. I don't think that's been made any better by the last year and a bit. So it will be intriguing. But as you say, I mean, it's apart from anything else, just interesting to see something new happening. It's just something new. And, and, and this is the key point. You know, I genuinely have no idea... Um, as GB News gets going in a few days, um, and, and and maybe I mean, one would hope there'd be some sort of similar response launch from from friends on the left. You know, I suppose my question ultimately, I don't know the answer to it, is but what do the customers, what do the consumers want these days? You know, and 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 is it left right or is it intergenerational? You know, where are the cleavages? Where is the market for this? Mm. Um, you know, uh, and for example, Owen Jones on left does very well on the internet, very well on Twitter. You know, he's a favoured writer of the sort of Corbynista left and, and, and very popular. Um, well, why can't their crew, you know, go on the airwaves? But but is any of it viable? That's your point, and I agree with you. I don't know the answer to this. Right. Well, we shall find out soon enough. Oh, yeah. uh, Tip, thank you very much indeed. I've been in conversation with Tim Evans, Professor of Business and Political Economy at Middlesex University in London, and we'll be back in a fortnight's time. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.